in Genesis again. And uh, we missed last week. And so, Ron, what did you talk about last week? You talked about you were going to talk about Easter. Is that what you talked about? Yeah. Good, good. Did you decide it happened or? That seems to be pretty now. Pretty now. Okay, good. Can anybody tell me what Ron said last week? This is the test. Thinking how to prove that. How to prove what? You got me really thinking. How do you know? Oh, okay. I must say, I thought Ron did a great job. He was reminded of some great truths. One of the things he talked about was we don't have, because we are not eyewitnesses, we are not uh, there to prove it, but there is a preponderance of evidence yeah. if you were just to look at it. Yeah, great, good. I like what he made the point that the stone was rolled away from the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to let us look at Yeah, amen. That's great, yeah. Anybody else? You want to throw any last thoughts in, Ron? This is your chance to close it off. <laughs> See, that's why I always go back and review because I pick up the pieces that I blew the week before. That's why I always do a review. They were very responsive and Good. everybody participated. Great. Everybody was very nice except Jim. And <laughs> <laughs> it's understandable. That's okay. He gets his shot here in a few weeks and, and you all can... Pardon? He was nice to Jim? Oh, okay. Poor Jim. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Well, we we will be gone again, my family, uh, uh, assuming that my daughter does okay tomorrow, uh, which I do assume, of course. We'll be gone again in uh, in uh, in May, and uh, so Jim gets you get your shot at Jim that that Sunday. So, anyway. But today we are in Genesis chapter 49. We're doing the last half of the chapter. Two weeks ago we did the first half of the chapter, and we are in that series of three great life events, or faith events, I call them, in the life, at the end of the life of Jacob, towards the close of Jacob's life. Uh, Very quickly, what are those three faith events that we've been talking about? What was the first one? In the life of Jacob, three faith events there at the close of Jacob's life, beginning at the end of chapter 48 and going through... Chapter 49. Okay, we're talking about right at the end of his life, the things we're talking about here at the end of Genesis. That definitely was a significant faith event. Uh, but we're talking about these three things that, that, he, that he does or that happen right here at the end of his life. He requested to be buried with Okay, so his... His uh, vow that he that he made Joseph swear to uh, that he would be buried in Canaan uh, was the first one. What's the second one? Okay, the adoption and blessing of the two sons of Joseph. Okay, and now we are in the third faith event, as I call it, and it's Jacob blessing his twelve sons and. Uh, we began that a couple weeks ago in the uh, first part of the chapter, uh, chapter 49, and uh, and we are going to pick it up in uh, Lord willing in verse 16 this morning, and uh, if we can go through the rest of the uh, the rest of the chapter. Uh, and uh, so last uh, two weeks ago when we were last together in Genesis. Uh, we looked at these uh, these first six sons that he blesses, 
And the first three that he blesses or uh, we say blesses or uh, prophesies concerning are Reuben and Simeon and Levi. And what is significant about his uh, prophecies concerning those three sons? Okay, okay. We call them blessings, but they're really kind of more anti-blessings, aren't they? And what's the reason for that? For example, with Reuben, who is the firstborn. Okay, okay. Reuben had defiled one of uh, Jacob's uh, concubines, and uh, and so he was uh, displaced from his position of honor as the firstborn. What about Simeon and Levi? What was significant about them that caused such problems? Pardon? Yeah, their anger. How they had uh, how they had uh, uh, de- uh, deceitfully uh, attacked and destroyed the city of Shechem and all the people in Shechem. And uh, and so they were also not allowed to hold the place of honor of firstborn and they lost their uh, position of honor within the within the nation. Uh, and then he goes on uh, and he talks about uh, Judah and we talked at some about Judah last week. I left that kind of to the end of our study and he talks about Zebulun and Issachar and we talked about those prophecies uh, and I'll come back and talk just a little bit more about Judah because uh, we were kind of in a hurry there at the end. And so I want to just mention a couple of things about Judah and then we'll go on to the others. Uh, what form does this part of Scripture take? What, what kind of genre or form does the style do we have? here? It's poetry, OK? And because it's poetry, it it presents some difficulty for translation and also for interpretation. So, as you read the commentaries on this particular passage, uh, they're kind of at points that really struggling with some difficult issues. And, and I'm not going to go into all those. I've kind of settled on, on the, the interpretations or understandings that I think make the most sense. And those are the ones that I'll present to you today without trying to belabor all the different alternatives that you might have. But uh, but there is a great deal written about this and there's a great deal to study about it if you'd like to do that, because there are other possible ways at looking at some of these things. But what's what what are one of the reasons why at times scripture commits things or communicates things in a poetic form? Why does he do that? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Okay, it facilitates, for one thing, it facilitates memory. That's why we sing the hymns that we sing and the choruses that we sing, because it's a way of remembering truths and implanting truths in our mind and helping us keep them uh, fresh in our minds. Uh, What else? What What does poetry do as it communicates truth? More emotional. Okay, it makes more kind of a visceral connection with us, doesn't it? Oftentimes, uh, uh, oftentimes, just strict prose is kind of can be more intellectual sometimes uh, and more mental. And uh, one of the things that poetry does is it kind of tries to break down that barrier and kind of get to the heart. Uh, we miss a lot of that because we're reading it in English, and so we miss uh, uh, some of the sense of the poetry in Hebrew. And there's, it, you know, if you, of course, I, I don't know Hebrew, so I I have to take the commentaries uh, commentators' uh, word for this, but. But there's a, there's a lot of fascination, uh, fascinating things that go on with the words and the structure of the words and the kinds of words that are used and 
and play on words and things like that that go on in this passage. So it's really a, a very deep passage and we're just kind of hitting the very surface of it uh, when we look at it. Um, as I mentioned, uh, towards the end of our study two weeks ago, we talked about Judah. And, uh, and well, let's just, let's just read that. Uh, let's read the passage about Judah and then drop down to verse 16 and read the rest of the chapter. So, uh, Judah, uh, the, the prophecy or blessing of Judah starts in verse 8. It says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He, crouch, he couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares to rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Then we drop down to verse... He does Zebulun and Hiscar. And then we drop down to verse 16. He says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that the, his rider falls backwards. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. As for Asher, his food shall be rich and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by string. It's spring. Its branches run over a wall. The arches bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above and blessings of the earth that lie, of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the beasts of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be upon the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with a blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Okay? Well, uh, just a, a, a couple things about Judah that I want to just take a little bit more time to reflect on. We talked mostly about it and we talked about the fact that the, the imagery of the lion there is a communication of royalty 
and uh, that this is very clearly is understood by Christian and Jewish commentators and scholars alike to be a reference primarily, first of all, to David and to the Davidic dynasty, and then ultimately to the to the ultimate son of David, uh, who is, of course, to be the Messiah, who's referred to in Revelation as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So there's all that that uh, lion imagery that that comes out in this prophecy of Judah. And among the first six sons who are blessed here in the first part of the chapter, the, the prophecy of Judah is really the most substantial one. It's much more substantial than his prophecies or blessings of the others. And I mentioned last week, or a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, there's some difficulty with the word Shiloh in the sense, what is it? What is it really trying to communicate there? But it seems that it seems that the sense of the word Shiloh is the meaning of it is the one to whom it belongs. And so when he's talking about the scepter uh, uh, remaining with Judah until Shiloh comes, the idea is until the one comes to whom it belongs. In other words, the one to whom the rule and the dominion belongs. Okay. And so the word there until is being used not in the sense of, uh, of until uh, something is finished or completed, uh, but until the idea is until it is fulfilled. OK, so it's not that the scepter is going to s- cease to be with Judah uh, with the coming of Shiloh, but rather that in the coming of Shiloh, the, there's going to be a complete fulfillment of the scepter belonging to Judah. And and then he says. Uh, Jacob says uh, that this is the one to whom will be the obedience of the peoples. That appears to be a reference to the nations. He's already talked about about his sons uh, respecting him, revere, his brothers respecting him, revering him, and bowing down to him, and that sort of thing. So from this, at this point, he appears to be going on, and he's referring to all of the nations. And so the. The clear thought here is that what Jacob is saying is that there there's one descendant coming from Judah to whom the obedience of all the nations belongs, to whom the rule over all the nations belongs. And when we think of that of that prophecy in Revelation chapter five that speaks of the lion of the tribe of Judah, specifically what it's talking about there about the about the lion of the tribe of Judah is talking about. When it mentions him there in Revelation 5, it's mentioning him in reference to the one who is worthy to open the book with the seals on it. Okay, so there's all this this book with the seals on it, and John is all disturbed because nobody's worthy to open the book. And then the angels come and they say, "Don't worry about it. We've got one who is worthy to open the book, and it is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one to whom the obedience of the nations belongs." And ultimately, that's going to happen. Now, what's significant about this to me is here we have Jacob who has had struggles throughout his life. Sometimes when he's been very successful and sometimes he's really dropped the ball on this issue of faith. And uh, but throughout his life, he's struggled with this issue of faith, sometimes more successfully than others. But here he is at the end of his life and he is giving these blessings and it's very easy for us to make the mistake of thinking that Joe, that Jacob in giving these blessings is determining the future of his sons and their tribes. But he is not. He is simply telling us what God is telling him. 
He is speaking prophetically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here is Jacob on his deathbed, perhaps moments or, or within an hour or two of his death, and, and the Holy Spirit has come upon him and is speaking to him about the future of the nation of Israel. And we have this glorious prophecy about Judah, which is clearly speaking to the way off in the distant future. And, and that really resonates with us. We connect with this prophecy of Judah. But many of these other prophecies, of the, these, more, these briefer prophecies or blessings, if you will, for most of the other sons with the exclusion of Joseph, which is also quite lengthy, uh, they're, they're, they're fairly brief. They're a little obscure to us. We kind of, some of them you have to kind of figure out, okay, now how did this come true and how was this fulfilled and how did this happen or has it happened yet or whatever. And so they're a little obscure to us. And so we may be inclined to kind of dismiss their significance. Uh, most of these prophecies were fulfilled in the life of these various tribes sometime between the conquest of Canaan and the and the heir of the king. So somewhere in that time frame, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, etc. Somewhere in that time frame, most of these things we can identify. Some of them are a little obscure, but most of them we can identify and say, well, that that came true in, uh, for example, with the with the tribe of Dan or with the tribe of Gad or or with the tribe of Zebulun, etc. At this point in time, these things came true, or with Manasseh or Ephraim, and we can identify those things. Now, as we read that ourselves, reading it in the 21st century, we can read that and go, well, so what? You know, it was a long time ago. Uh, it doesn't seem to be all that significant to us. But we must remember, when were these blessings given? Okay, before any of it had happened. And how long before any of it had happened? At least 400 years, meaning that Jacob gives this gives these blessings, many of which or most of which are going to be beginning to be fulfilled four or five hundred years later. Okay, so he gives these blessings, and what happens in that intervening 400 years? Israel is enslaved. Okay. So think about these blessings or these prophecies from the viewpoint of Israel as it enters into its 400 years of mistreatment in Egypt. Then these prophecies make a whole lot more sense to us, don't they? Then we can begin to connect with them because then we begin, then we realize that what God is doing here through Jacob is He is giving to the nation of Israel and to each one of these tribes individually something they can cling to and something they can hold on to during all those long, dark years of mistreatment in Egypt that goes on for generation after generation after generation. And so, the beauty of this to me is that God cared so much about Israel at this point that He wanted to give them these promises that they could hold on to. So we look at these and we go, well, so what's such a big deal about this? Well, if you're a slave in Egypt, it's a pretty big deal to realize you're going to come out of Egypt. 
and you're going to be given a plot of ground and that plot of ground is going to be very fruitful and you're going to you're going to eat rich food and you're going to and you're going to produce uh, the dainty royal dainties as he says about Naphtali or excuse me about uh, Asher and uh, or or that he says about uh, Naphtali that you're going to be like a doe set free or uh, so as, as if you think about those things from the perspective of captivity you realize or, or of slavery in Egypt you realize what a blessing and what a hope these promises were so they're not trivial they may look small to us but to Israel these were great blessings and great promises and God does the same thing for us doesn't he we have periods of time very dark times in our lives but God has given us his word and God has given us his promises so that as we go through those dark times in our lives, we have something to cling to. And we have a certainty and we have a hope and we have a future. And so that's what's going on here. Well, then he picks up in the second half of the... Of the I divide it in half. It's not really divided in half. But beginning with the second half of the list of names, the second six, he talks about Dan. He says Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, Dan will be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels. Uh, there are some incidences in the book of Judges that, that bring out some of the fulfillment of these things. But particularly of interest to me is he says, Dan shall judge his people. And uh, we, one of the greatest judges in all of the history of Israel was whom? Samson, okay? And Samson was from the tribe of Dan. And so, those are very glorious days for Israel when Samson was the judge over all of Israel. And, and so, this is, a, this is a reference to this as, as, as uh, Dan and his descendants are beginning to enter into this 400 dark years in Egypt. This is a promise that they're going to come out on the other side and that Dan is going to be one of the, uh, the a descendant of Dan is going to be one of the judges of all the people of Israel, and uh, and and then also that although there's going to be some difficulties involved, there's obviously some implied difficulties in the second part of that prophecy. Uh, clearly, he's going to prevail. Dan is going to prevail, and that's the promise. Uh, then then we have this interesting verse, verse 18, right in the middle of this string of blessings that Jacob is pronouncing on his sons, we have this prayer. He says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. It's kind of like he's he's going through and he's gotten through seven of these blessings so far. He's lifted seven blessings. And then just suddenly he kind of just interjects this prayer of hope. This 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 prayer of waiting or hoping in the Lord and hoping for the Lord's salvation. That's kind of interesting. It's, just, it's the only one in the whole passage like that, and he just kind of interjects this prayer. Well, Rick, why, why do you think that's interjected and not part of the Dan's blessing? Uh, it may be part of Dan's blessing. It may be part of Dan's blessing. Uh, and I was, going to, I was going to mention that. that Well, no, that's a good question. Uh, I was going to mention that the question is, why does he interject it here? What's going on in Jacob's mind that he interjects this prayer right here? And it may be that in his blessing of Dan, he sees that kind of 
in addition to the blessing, the good part, he sees kind of the, the shadow that's there, the negative, you know, the, the biting of the horse's heel, you know, implies adversaries, imply, um, implies conflict, okay? And, and the fact is that as you go through the whole list of blessings, you see that kind of repeatedly throughout the whole list, that, that, that repeatedly throughout the list, he's kind of, as you're hearing all these good things that are going to happen, you also get kind of this implied trouble or affliction or conflict or struggle. Okay, It's kind of a sub-theme that's in these blessings. And so it may be that just at this point, as he's thinking about his prophecy regarding Dan, that it just strikes him that even with all these blessings that we know are going to happen, there's still a greater salvation we wait for. And what's interesting to me is that this word salvation here, it's the first time this Hebrew word is used in all of Scripture. And the word is Yeshua. The Hebrew word is Yeshua, from which we get Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. And so I just wonder if if the cumulative effect as he's giving these prophecies and then he's thinking about Dan and Dan's struggles he finally just really, he comes to a point and he just goes, we need something greater than these blessings. We need something beyond these blessings. We need the salvation of God. Yeah. 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 Uh, it probably does. You want to tell us what it is? Dang it, smoke. <laughs> I don't have an answer to that question, but that is, and some of the commentators point that out, and I don't have an answer to that. Uh, and so then we go on from Dan. We we go on to Gad, and uh, he said, and there again, it's kind of a negative thing. The raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Now we don't do know this about Gad that when they went into con- uh, for the conquest, that Gad was one of those. Uh, tribes that ended up in the Transjordan area on the east border of Jordan didn't actually go into what we typically think of as the land of Canaan. And so they were kind of vulnerable. They were out there exposed to the Ammonites and the Moabites. And, and, uh, and so they were kind of exposed out there and they, and they struggled a lot with, with these various nations attacking them and coming after them and they, because they were more on the flank. They were more vulnerable. But they were very successful over the years and defending themselves and countering those attacks. And, and so that's simply an expression. It seems to be that the prophecy is an expression uh, of that reality. And then, and then we have Asher. And Asher is just kind of a, it's just a, a, kind of a beautiful uh, picture there with Asher. It says that his food will be rich and he will yield royal dainties. Kind of sounds like the way some of us eat. Uh, but uh, the reason here is because Asher is given a plot of uh, a, a section of land within the promised land is kind of in the lowlands of Canaan and uh, of Carmel and extends over to the Mediterranean Sea and northward up to the region of Tyre. Very lush, very rich area, and this is the area of land that. Esh- yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, so, uh, so apparently they had a very. They were going. They had this promise. So you can imagine how comforting this is to the to the sons and the daughters of Asher two or three hundred years into their 
mistreatment in Egypt. To know that this is something we have to look forward to. This is a promise we have from God. And then there's Naphtali is a a doe let loose. He gives wonderful or beautiful words. Uh, Again, this is very difficult to translate. I think most of the translations, modern translations, translate that words there. Uh, I tend to think probably a better translation that fits better with the context is is fawns, uh, beautiful fawns. So that would... Is that how it does it? Yeah. So uh, the idea there, Naphtali actually gets the northernmost region in Canaan. So they're clear up in what's northern Galilee. And and what's interesting is they have no northern border. The, you know, as you read through the description of the distribution of land, they always list the borders for all the various tribes. But Naphtali being on the very north, has, is, there's no northern border designated for it, which kind of says it's all open for you, man. <laughs> Just whatever you want, you go get it. You know, it's wide open to the north. And uh, so there's the idea of freedom and liberty there. Uh, and again, for somebody who's struggling with slavery in Egypt, these are great comforting words. And, and the idea there, of uh, he gives beautiful or he produces beautiful words or as I suggest to you, beautiful fawns is the idea that they're going to have many wonderful descendants that will come from Naphtali. Uh, then we have the, uh, the blessing of Joseph and I want to skip over that for a moment and, uh, and go down to the one about... Benjamin in verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours his prey and in the evening he divides the spoil. And the idea there with Benjamin uh, is, is his, uh, his warlike nature, his warlike powers uh, and his abilities. And, uh, and that, in fact, is characteristic of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, the history of Benjamin, uh, the, tri- uh, the tribe of Benjamin gets very ugly in the book of, jo- uh, book of Judges. Uh, gets very unpleasant, uh, but this is one characteristic of them that they're very powerful, very warlike people, uh, very skilled at warfare. But he gives this blessing of Joseph, and it is of the uh, the, the first sex. The predominant blessing is the blessing of Judah, and the second uh, set of sex, uh, the predominant blessing is the blessing of Joseph. And he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough with a sp- by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers, bi- archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you. And by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above and blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the bre- blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Well, first thing is this promise of fruitfulness. And as we saw when we discussed the blessings of Manasseh and Ephraim, that in fact what happened? That these become two of the largest tribes in Israel. And Ephraim becomes the dominant tribe or the predominant tribe, certainly among the ten northern kingdoms. Uh, and, and of course, rivals Judah uh, with the, the king of the northern kingdom coming from Ephraim, etc. So, so they do have this great bountifulness or fruitfulness of people that come uh, from Joseph. Uh, and uh, and then it mentions the archers bitterly attacking him and commentators, they kind of hum and haw around this. And, but I, to me, it's just clearly a reference to his brothers. I, I don't know of any other real 
adversaries other than Potiphar's wife that uh, that Joseph ever had. And so to me, it seems pretty clearly that it's a reference to his brothers. And, and it says they attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. And that's clearly a description of Joseph's early experience with his brothers. But you'll notice it says his bow remained firm and his arms agile. And so the picture is that that here is Jacob. And this seems to be kind of the foundation of the book, the reason why he's blessed. Because even though he is so viciously and wrongly treated by his brothers, his bow remains firm and his arms agile. Now, what's interesting about Joseph is, is we, don't see any, we don't see anything in the life of Joseph, in the history of Joseph, that, we would, that would incline us to associate it with war or, or, or violence or, or something along that lines. Or even what's striking about Joseph is there's, no, there's never any effort to ever retaliate against his brothers. And so I don't think that the reference here to Joseph in the past is is a reference to some way that he that he by his power or his strength, by his military power or his warlike abilities overcame his adversaries. But what's striking here is that Joseph, even though he's attacked by his brothers and even though they seek to overthrow him and they harass him and do all this stuff to him, that he remains unmoved. He's not changed. His bow remains firm and his arms remain agile. That Joseph, even though he has these great adversaries around him, who in this case were his brothers, and they did such terrible things to him, Joseph as a man of character remains unchanged. Yeah? Uh, in some of the prophecies, uh, both represents warfare, but it's a spiritual Good, yeah, good. Good, great, good. So, so I do think that's what it's referring to. I do think it's referring here to uh, Joseph's spiritual strength. And I just think about that, how outstanding that is, because oftentimes when we are wrongly attacked, wrongly accused, and we're maligned, we're harassed, and people shoot at us, oftentimes how do we respond? Oftentimes, we turn bitter or we turn hard or we retaliate in kind. And the thing that we learn from the story of Joseph is that he committed his soul to the Lord. He trusted God. And he just did what he knew was right. And God settled the scores in the long run. And that's what's outstanding. And I think that is the reason then that this abundant blessing comes out on him. And Jacob describes the blessing as being greater than any blessing before him. Okay. He says, you have been, the blessing you're receiving from your father is greater than the blessings of my ancestors. So he's saying the blessing extended to Joseph is greater than the blessing on Abraham or Isaac or in fact to the bounds of the everlasting hills. In other words, you're looking around the hills of Canaan. Of course, they're in Egypt at the time, but I think it's a reference to the hills of Canaan. And the idea is these hills have been here since creation. And since creation, there has never been a blessing as great as the blessing that Joseph is receiving. Now, that's a little puzzling to me. I don't know about to you. It's a pretty wonderful blessing uh, that Joseph receives. 
And of course, part of it involved his elevation to his position in Egypt and all that sort of thing. But primarily it's a reference to the tribe. And, and, uh, and of course, we see some of that in Ephraim and Manasseh uh, in, the, in the period of, the, of uh, uh, Joshua and Judges and into the period of the, of the, the monarchies uh, and the kingdom. Uh, so we see some of that, but I'm a little puzzled by it. And I wonder if this is not one of those prophecies that yet is still somehow to be fulfilled or realized. And, and I can't answer that question totally. But, but what does strike me here is the greatness of the blessing that Joseph receives. And in comparison to all other blessings before it. Uh, but he also stresses the source of the blessing. He stresses it so strongly, so emphatically, doesn't he? This blessing is from God. This is from the God of your father, from, from uh, the mighty God of, of uh, uh, how do you say, from the God of your father who helps you, the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above and from the deep that is beneath uh, and from the breast and of the womb. The idea there uh, is a reference to uh, the, the blessings of heaven above and of the deep and lies beneath. It's the idea of the rains from heaven and the springs of water from under the earth that you're going to be blessed with this just super abundance in your crops and in your uh, harvests and that sort of thing and then of course the blessings of the breasts and of the womb is is the is the blessing of a multitude both of descendants of his own descendants as well as the blessing among his his cattle and his uh, livestock and that sort of thing and so that's what's uh, implied there well, then, he, so his son then blessing his 12 sons. And it says in verse 28, he says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's very clear. This is not simply a blessing on the young, on the men before him, but it's a blessing on their descendants, a blessing on the tribes after them. And as I said, most of these blessings don't come true, uh, don't, are not fulfilled until we get into the period of the conquest and after that. And then Jacob turns to charge, give this charge to his sons and his family. And the charge is where they're going to bury him. Now, what's significant here, he's already done this with Joseph, okay. But with Joseph, this, this is much more substantial. He, he's much, he elaborates much more on here than he did with Joseph. And another distinction is that with Joseph, he required a, an oath. He made Joseph swear an oath that he would do it. But here he simply charges his sons. But what strikes me here is how in, how forcefully he communicates the idea of the place. You notice that? He says, um, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Verse 29. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Okay, now, he's saying this to the, his sons who lived there. They've only been in Egypt a few years. Most of their lives they spent living there. They know where this is. They know where Abraham's buried. They know where Isaac's is buried. They know where this cave is in the field of Ephron. They know that. That's all he needed to say and they would know. Right? But he doesn't stop there. He says, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, which is near Hebron, in the land of Canaan, which Abram, Abraham bought from uh, along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. 
There he buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There he buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there he buried Leah in the, and the field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. There's at least eight specific identifying phrases there to the location. To guys who already know where it is. Why does he do that? Okay, very good point. He doesn't, he, you know, he, he knows it's going to be many years. Uh, actually, he does have the prophecy from Abraham, from his grandfather Abraham, uh, that it's going to be 400 years. Uh, but he, does, he doesn't know how many generations are going to pass. So it's very important for, for his descendants that they know exactly where this place is. Also, no one has been there. All the Israelites left. So you have to prove somehow, okay, we know... And we have a title to it. Yeah. And we have a title to it. Yeah. But what is interesting to me here is this idea that we've seen throughout the book of Genesis is the importance of place. We've talked about this many times before and it just strikes me. We see it all the way through Scripture actually. Is that God puts so much importance on places. And I think that's instructive to us. It's actually a... Uh, it's actually a... Uh, 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 one way that Scripture refutes this idea that we are primarily just spiritual beings, you know, and when we die, you know, we're just going to be spirits and we're going to be these disembodied spirits floating around in heaven up there somewhere. But that is not the way it is. God created us as physical beings. Now, that's all corrupted and damaged now by the fall. But but He intends to change that. And we are going to spend eternity in physical bodies. That's the teaching of Scripture. And I hate, to, I hate to rattle your cage or whatever, but you're not going to spend eternity in heaven. You're not going to spend eternity in heaven. You're going to spend eternity on the earth. That's what Revelation teaches. You may be in heaven for a while, but that's just a, that's just a holding station, you know. Uh, between you know when you die and, and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. But God is going to establish a new heavens and a new earth. We are physical people, created spiritual and physical people, created to live in a spiritual and physical place. And that's what God intends for us. And, and so place is important throughout Scripture. And that's why Scripture speaks of the everlasting covenant of land, etc., etc. So that strikes me here. Well, and then quite finally, we come to the end of Jacob's life and he finished charging his sons and he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and left his family behind. Is that what it says? What? He was gathered to his people. Isn't that a beautiful expression? How do we think of death? We think of death as leaving people behind, don't we? But in Scripture, the real objective is to get to be over there with them. Okay? All of us are leaving here and going somewhere else. And so when we die, we're just passing out of a temporary phase. And it's true that we are leaving some people behind. But in time, they too will join us. 
And so here is, here is Jacob and, 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 and Scripture uses this beautiful expression not only here but in many other places as well. This beautiful expression of he's gathered to his people. He's going to join Dad and Granddad and Noah and Adam and Enoch and all these other guys. He's going to join them. And that's really what it's all about. And and that doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't mourn and we shouldn't grieve. And in fact, in the very next few verses, when we get into the next chapter, we're going to see Joseph mourning. And there's a long period of mourning for the loss of Jacob. And there's this marvelous funeral procession and honoring Jacob. So it's not that mourning and weeping for our loss is not... Uh, is it somehow inappropriate? That's not the point. The point is that ultimately, when all is said and done, we are being gathered to our people. And God is ultimately uniting us all together again. He's bringing us all back together. But it can't happen here and now. Because this place is corrupted by the fall. And so we all ultimately are going to join that great cloud of witnesses. And we are all going ultimately to join those loved ones of ours who knew and loved the Lord and are in His presence now. And when I die, presumably I will be leaving some behind and that will be painful for me and hopefully painful for them. (laughs) I hope they miss me. But ultimately it's going to be a glorious thing because I will be going gathered to my people. Okay? Well, next week, we'll look at the funeral. It's quite a funeral. Okay?